Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. If you missed this service, we hope to see you this Sunday at either 8.45 a.m. for our praise and worship service or 11 a.m. for our traditional service. Now, here's this week's message. So good morning. So we're almost done with our church-wide campaign called The Story. For the past 30 weeks, we've been looking at the big overview of Scripture. We've been seeing the main themes and, of course, learning the stories. And if you've been following along with us and if you've been reading along with us, you have almost read the vast majority of the Scriptures. Congratulations. You should have a much better handle on it. And again, you can read your Bible all the time. That's a really good thing to do, right? We're like, yeah, okay, we know this. That's good. And so remember, September 1st, we're starting a new sermon series called Believe. You see, through this story, we've learned the overarching themes. We've learned the overarching idea. And now Believe, it's going to be a 10-week journey where we look at the core truths of our faith. So the good thing, they, they go together very well. Now that we've got the big idea, we understand what's happening, who the people are, now we're going to look at 10 core truths that we then pull from so we can understand why we believe what we believe. Make sense? And that's starting September 1st. It'll be a good time. Just letting you know that's all happening. A good foundation, again, is what we're laying so we're all on the same page moving forward. And this week, if you followed along with us, you learned more about the Apostle Paul. Remember, he was someone who was called by God. He wrote a lot of the New Testament, and he was a church planner who would travel around telling people about Jesus. This week, we read about you know, the end of his life, kind of his final journeys. We saw some of his final missionary journeys, and he was arrested, thrown in prison. And it was in prison, he writes some of the most beautiful letters and, and in that chapter, as I was reading this week, there was just one section that really stood out to me that I want to talk about today. It's just from one of his letters. The, the book is called Ephesians, or the letter is called Ephesians. It's a letter he wrote to this church while he was in prison. Hopefully one day as a church, we're going to go through that entire book together on a Sunday morning. But for now, we're just going to look at about six verses this morning. And, and here's kind of the background. You see, Paul would travel around, tell people about Jesus. And one of the things that he quite frequently has to deal with is that people have to come together and be united around Jesus Christ. You see, one of the big issues he was facing is that you have Jews and Gentiles now having to share the same space. You see, Jews would be separated. Remember the Old Testament? You remember going through that? We saw the Jews were supposed to be this separate group of people. They were supposed to influence the world towards God. But as we read in the Old Testament, when the Jewish people would get around people of a different faith, would the Jewish people influence them towards God, or would they influence the Jewish people towards idols? If you followed along with us, you know they always influence the Jewish people towards idols. And so Jewish people knew this, I mean, time after time. So they started really separating themselves. They would kind of, we're here, you're over there, we have our way, we have our laws, we have our dietary, we have our thing. Now that we're back in our homeland, we don't want to mess this up again. Y'all stay out there, we'll stay over here. 
Well, now you have, under Jesus, because of what he has done, now we see that God's chosen people are all people in Christ. The idea is kind of like Israel has been expanded to where now all people are welcome to be the people of God under Jesus Christ. But you have Gentiles who didn't grow up in Jewish homes. They didn't have Jewish moms who taught them the scripture and told them how to read scripture. They didn't stay away from bacon. That'd be hard, wouldn't it? They didn't stay away from bacon. So he's writing to a group of people who have a different idea of what success looks like, different idea of what goals look like, different ideas about marriages. You have these two very different, group, different groups of people having to figure out how can we now get along? How can we come together under Jesus to do what he has asked us to do? And so it doesn't surprise us then when we understand that. We read Paul's letters. He's constantly saying, hey, y'all got to get along. Hey, you have to come together. Hey, there's so much at stake if you don't. And you see, I honestly believe if we fast forward 2,000 years later in the year 2019, I honestly believe that this is the biggest issue facing churches today. And I've studied churches for quite a few years now, and I honestly believe the most important issue when it comes to the health of a church, that is a body of believers who come together, is unity. Tom Rayner, who was the president of Southern Baptist, um, excuse me, of Lifeway, the, that, the store, you know, Lifeway Christian Stores, y'all familiar with that? He was the president, not any longer, but he, he reported churches, excuse me, he studied churches who had closed their doors. Churches who were no longer in existence for whatever reason, they had shut down, handed their building over to somebody else. The church had declined so much, just had to give it away. He studied them, and then he published his findings called Autopsies of a Deceased and Dying Church, which talks about the symptoms, the things all of these churches that closed down had in common. It's honestly a, a scary read, to be honest with you. But one of the common threads that all of these churches closed down had in common, the, the thing that bound them, one of them, was called the preference-driven church. He states, A church cannot survive long where members are focused on their own preferences. My style of music, my desired length and order of worship service, my desired color my, and design of buildings and my rooms, my activities and programs, my needs of ministers and staff. And then he says, my, my, my. You see, we all have our preferences, and you know this. We all have things that we like in the certain way we like these things. But that's what we have homes for, Right? At your home, who gets to pick the color? Yeah, all the women said, well, I do, of course. And we're like, right, we don't get to do that, but that's okay. But in our homes, we have the, our homes are the place we do our preferences, where we care about our preferences. They're the area we can control. In fact, we control what people wear in our homes, don't we? Ask my son. School's coming. I control what is war outside of my house. It's not going to last much longer. I know that. But for now, I do. In fact, did you know you can control what people wear when they come in your house? How many of you are the people who say you got to take your shoes off? Y'all embarrass all of us who don't have good socks on that day. I'm just letting you know. If you invite somebody over and you have the take your shoes off policy, please let us know in advance so we can wear our nice socks. Just think about that, because some of us, you know, anyways, it doesn't matter. Just remember that. In fact, if someone comes over and is wearing shorts, you can actually not let them in. You're like, I know. 
right? Like you actually control what people wear in your house. You control what room they come in. You control what room's off limit. You control how cold it is. You control how hot it is. You control what the background music is playing in your home. In your home, you get to carry out all of your preferences. But when you come together with hundreds of other people in a building, how in the world could we do that? We can't. So with there being so many options, so many preferences, every church can get distracted and caught up with things that are so unimportant and take our eyes off of what Jesus Christ has called us to do as a local church. And this week, just for fun, I googled church fights. And I found this list. Again, it's by Tom Rainer. It says 25 silly things church members fight over. Now, I'm not going to read all 25. I'm sure most of you are going to go Google it or some of you are doing it right now. Pay attention, okay? You can do that after the service. But I just want to read a couple that stood out to me because I just found them hilarious. Okay, number one. Argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I've already had the conversation with Rocky and Scott. They, Scott has about a centimeter going, and Rocky says he's shaving, so we don't have to worry about that here. A church argument and vote, so it's Baptist, to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. Oh, we didn't think that one was as funny? I think that's funny. A 45-minute heated argument. Number three, a 45-heated argument over the type of filing cabinets to be purchased. Black or brown, two, three, or four-drawer filing cabinets. Listen, a petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. A business meeting argument about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took the church two business meetings to resolve the problem. This is probably my favorite. An argument of whether or not the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. <laughs> this isn't a joke. There's no, this is literally what people are fighting over in the local church. And there's two groups of people here because I can see it on your face. Those of you who are new, and you're like, are you serious? Why would they worry about that? And then those of you who've been in church for over three years, especially you volunteered for something, you're saying, you're right, that's why I quit doing everything. Because it's such a waste of time. And there's something so much bigger, and there's so many more things that we can be focusing our attention on. But my point is simple. The church has been battling this problem for over 2,000 years. This isn't a new thing. And it's so important, far more important than we realize. We'll get to that towards the end of the sermon. But I believe that if we grab hold of these six verses, in fact, if every church would just grab hold of these six verses, we would literally, not figuratively, we would literally change the entire world. We would accomplish so much for the gospel. And so Paul lays out these three things we can be united around. I'm going to tell you up front. He says we can be united around our calling, our conduct, and our confession. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 1 and 6. If you don't, that's okay. It'll be on the one screen we have working this morning. 
the one screen. The other one blew this morning. We'll get that fixed as soon as we can. I'm going to read the six verses this morning for you, and then we're going to go through it together. It says this. As a prisoner for the Lord, just to let you know, he's, it's not a metaphor. He's actually a prisoner. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And just for a disclaimer, this also applies to marriages. This also applies to a work environment. This could apply to absolutely anything. We're looking at it in the context of a local church because that's who he's writing it to. But as a marriage, as a married couple, go ahead and read through this. It will work for you as well. But he says this. He says, first, we're united by our calling. Verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, he says, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, notice he doesn't suggest we do this. He urges us. He's like, listen, this is very important. He's trying to persuade us to live a life worthy of the calling. And what that means, well, first, how many of us have heard of the idea of being called? Five, okay, a lot of us, okay. So usually when we hear the word calling, we think of missionary or we think of pastor. I used to hear people tell me that God would call them, and I was wondering why he wasn't calling me. I was wondering what I missed or what Bible verse I needed to read. And I just couldn't figure this thing out. But I need you to know this morning that every single person has been called by God. Calling isn't just for missionaries. It's not just for pastors. We all have been called. We just have to answer the phone on a very basic level. We've all been called to live a life worthy of our salvation. You may have heard us say, we're all called to bring glory to God in all that we do. Paul uses this term in Ephesians, we'll go over it another day, but it's about in Christ. Now that we are saved, now that we are part of what God is doing, we are to live into that. It's as if we have a responsibility to Christ because of what he has done. And it's not that we earn our salvation, it's for grace we're saved. But it's because of our salvation, in light of our salvation, we live differently. Scholar, this scholar Klein Snodgrass says, If God's love is so great, if his salvation is so powerful, if God has granted such reconciliation, then believers should live accordingly. They should value God's love enough to be shaped by it. We're united in our salvation. Therefore, we have a responsibility to live it out, to bring glory to God, which means all of us have that same calling. We are all here to try to figure out how do we bring glory to God? How do we live out our calling? How can we make him first? We should all be asking those questions because that's what we're all trying to work through. You see, calling doesn't mean you're going to be a pastor or missionary. You might get that call one day. Who knows? It might mean that you're just going to be a chef or a cook. That's okay. Cooking to me is probably like preaching to you. I enjoy good cooking, but I never want to do it. Might take you a second to get what I meant. You may enjoy good preaching, but you may never want to do it. That's okay. 
But unless you hear a specific calling from God, unless you hear him say, hey, I want you to come to this, understanding your calling is to bring him glory in all that you do gives you a tremendous amount of flexibility. It gives you a tremendous amount of flexibility to go, all right, here's my passions, here's my pursuit, here's the vocation, here's the job, here's what I want to do for an actual living. You see, you can sell cars and still bring glory to God. You can be a teacher and bring glory to God. You can fight fires and bring glory to God. You can work at Walmart and bring glory to God. You can be a banker. I know, it's hard to believe, but you can be a banker and bring glory to God. You can do anything and bring glory to God. And when we come together, we're united by that calling, that sense of, hey, here's what I got going on. Here's what I'm doing. I'm going to live my life in light of my salvation. How do I do that? What does that look like? So we're united around that. Pretty simple, isn't it? We're united around that. Our goal is to bring glory to God in all that we do. But we're also united or should be united in our conduct. Because he says this, here's what that looks like. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, let's just go over these quickly. You probably know them. But humility, it causes us to think differently. It literally means here, a lowliness of mind. The antonym is arrogance. I love how Max Anders put this. He says this. He says, humility does not mean that you see yourself as some pitiful excuse for humanity. Some low life above whom all other human beings exist. Some piece of refuge at the bottom of the human pile. He says, rather, humility means to see yourself as God sees you. With infinite and inherent value, but with no more value than anyone else. See, humility allows us to accept God's authority over our lives. Humility allows us to come in and serve other people and then he says gentleness gentleness is a call to abandon harshness it's a meek character one person says it's a power under control meaning being meek isn't less powerful it's a whole lot more powerful because you're intentionally being disciplined and controlled in your interactions with other it's commonly connected in the bible to submissiveness and then we have patience Patience in the context of relationships, like how we do with each other, is always moving at the pace of others. Patience about waiting on God is a little different, but here in our communities, we're trying to figure out how can we move at the pace of other people. It's just slowing down. It's understanding not everybody's as thinking as we are or moving like we are, so it's slowing down to bring them along with us. Snodgrass says, Patience is the exercise of a largeness of the soul that can endure annoyances and difficulties over a long period of time. And then my favorite on this list, what Paul says, it's called tolerant love. That's what he says because Paul isn't naive, and I absolutely love that he puts this in here. He actually knows that loving people is going to be hard, and when we come together, loving others will not be the easiest thing we do. And so instead of saying, be gentle, humble, patient, and love, He says, bearing with one another in love. Meaning, we just put up with people because we love them. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. One scholar says, 
It's we put up with the things that bother us knowing, and other people knowing that they're going to put up with the things that bother them about us. When I think of tolerant love, I think of a grandparent. Maybe your grandparent was like this. Jessica's grandparents were. You see, parents don't have it. I don't have tolerant love. I mean, I'm trying to shape and mold my kids. Grandparents come in. It's a whole different experience. They let them do things and listen to things. I mean, grandparents don't care what they do. They just want to be with their grandkids. When we would go to Florida to visit Jessica's grandparents, they were in their 90s. We would go in the summer in Tampa. Anybody been to Tampa Bay in the summer? Okay, it's not cool at all, is it? They were in their 90s taking us to bush gardens and walking around with us in the middle of the day because they wanted to be with their granddaughter. We didn't necessarily want to go, but they wanted to go, so we went, and you have 93-year-old people walking around in 110 degrees in an amusement park to be with their granddaughter. Tolerant love. When they would come to Virginia, they said, hey, we want to go to worship with you guys, and we were like, well... You probably don't. Again, they're in their 90s. Like, you probably don't, because we were, this was before I was a pastor. We were going to a, a, just a contemporary church. It was dark, loud, stuff like that. We said, you know, you probably don't want to come to this service. They said, yeah, we do. We don't, we don't care. We got to that service. They walked right to the front. I'm not joking. They're not Baptist. I knew that from the get-go, okay? They walked right, sat in the front. I said, this is what's going to happen here. Like, who knows? Lights went off. Other lights went on. Guitars went up. They stood up and started clapping. They never worshiped like that before in their life, but they'd rather be sitting and worship with their granddaughter than not be there at all. Tolerant love. And love is so much more important than these other things. And now, to be fair, we showed them tolerant love when we went to the Elks Lodge for spaghetti night so they could show us off. Okay, so we all kind of do this. We, we, you know, eating at 3 o'clock in the afternoon wasn't what we wanted to do, but we did it. And so we have to behave our way. You understand this. We do it with our family. When we talk about the church being a family, that's the point. It's not just something we say. It's something we should be doing. Tolerant love is putting up with others for their benefit, loving them. We have to behave our way to unity. Because then he says this in verse 3. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So living out our calling, living out these characteristics is what we're striving to do. But here's what's so important. A church's default should be what? Unity. Look at this. Make every effort to keep. Unity isn't something we manufacture. Unity is something given to us by God. Unity is something that he's already created through what Jesus has done. So we think, oh, well, we got to manufacture unity. we got to do this. No, the scripture is saying God has already established unity. Unity is the church's default mode. We just have to keep, or another translation for that word keep is guard against disunity. Meaning when a church is ununified, there's a problem. It's not from God. It's not of God. There's an issue that must be dealt with. Maybe it's voting on filing cabinets or whatever, but the point is we should keep and guard unity in our church. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, excuse me, 12, 25. It was to a different uh, situation, but it still applies. 
He says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. We could say, if every church divided against itself will be in ruined and every church divided against itself will not stand. We will never accomplish what God has for this church or any church will not accomplish what God has for them if they are not unified. We can get distracted and caught up with so many silly things. But we're united by our calling, we're united by our conduct, and then we're united by our confession. In verse 4 and 5, he says this, and 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is saying, look at the big picture. There's only one. We get caught up with all this other stuff. He said, but look at how much you actually have in common. Now, so he says there's one body, and Paul's pulling a big view here. He's saying, hey, churches, remember, you're just a a small part of a bunch of other churches. You see, how God sees us is we're one body, one big church, but we express ourselves differently, meaning all of us should be on the same team. But then he says there's one spirit. We are empowered and gifted by the same Spirit. And there's one hope. Who's our hope? Jesus, of course. Remember, 85% of the time in church, Jesus is the answer. We have one Lord we profess. He's our Lord and Savior. We have one faith, the essentials, right? What Jesus has done, who he is. There's one baptism, right? Baptism is what unites us. It's, It's our mark. It's our calling. And then we have one God and Father. Paul stresses here. He's saying, listen, y'all are divided. Y'all are fighting or whatever's going on. He said, but there's only one of these things. One God, one Father, one baptism, one hope. One. We're so much more in common than we have apart if we would just focus on these big things. Now, unity may sound hard, especially if you've been in church for a long time. And again, I'm not picking on First Baptist Church if you're newer. This isn't just for us. It's just in general, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago because it was a problem then. And there are problems now. But unity is one of these things we just got to talk about. Because we have to be intentional about guarding against disunity. Does that mean we can't differ? Does that mean that we just have to blindly follow what somebody else says? Well, no, we're Baptists. That doesn't work at all. But what it does mean is that we strive to be united. Here's what's at stake. Here's the big reason. Here's the big saying, okay, Brian, why? We get that. Paul says that. But why is this really important? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 17. Before he went to the cross, he prays for himself. He prays that what he's about to do will glorify the Father. He prays for his disciples who he's about to leave behind, knowing that they're not going to get what's about to happen. But then he also prays for all believers of all times. This is so important to know that Jesus prayed for this 2,000 years ago. John chapter 17, verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, speaking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's you and I, that they all may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one in them and you, excuse me, 
in them, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then, that's a big then, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Can you believe that Jesus didn't pray that we would reach the world? Jesus didn't pray for, I I don't need to, Jesus prayed that we would be unified, and if we would unify, then the then would happen. Meaning Jesus' outreach strategy, Jesus' evangelism strategy, Jesus' church growth strategy was what? Unity. Because everybody's life is chaotic. Everybody goes through crazy things in marriages, crazy things with their parents, crazy things at school, crazy things at home. I'm not the only one, am I? Life is chaotic. And we all need to come together to see something different. And that's what the church should be about, that it's different here. And it's just in us being unified in this one thing, people will then understand that Jesus was really from the Father. Then people will believe in him and know that they will see the love of Jesus through the unity of the church. Meaning we can do the most amazing outreach things. We can do the most good things in the community. We can do, be the most traditional, have the biggest orchestra. We can be the most contemporary, have fog machines and all. We can do all of those things in our efforts to reach people. But if we're not unified, it's pointless. Unity is the thing above all things that a church must focus on. See, over the past year, we've been really working at this. The past year since I've been here, we've been focused on it. And our whole strategic planning team has come together to work through this. We've been trying to gain absolute clarity and working towards a vision in a direction that we believe God is calling First Baptist to do. And we're not coming up with these statements just to put on the wall or have little cute stickers or make shirts. While that will probably work, we're doing this because we want absolute clarity and to be united around where we believe God is leading us as a church. And all the work that we've done as a strategic leadership team, we want to bring to you and we want to share with you. And I'm very excited to tell you about it. Next Sunday at 2 o'clock, out the town hall meeting. That was unfair, wasn't it? That's all right. Next Sunday, 2 o'clock, at the town hall meeting. Come in here. Now, if this is your first time here, I want you to know, in closing, I'm almost done. You're going, what did I walk into? What in the world? Did they, what did they do to the pastor this week? Nothing. It's just one of those things that Jesus talked about, Paul wrote to churches about, and scholars are writing to the churches today about going, this is an issue. And if Jesus thought it was a big deal, we should probably think it's a big deal. That unity is something that we must strive for. And it's something that we have to talk about. Because the big picture is the gospel unites his church. What Jesus has done unites us in our calling. It should unite us in our conduct. And it should unite us in our confession of who he is. And when we stand united around the gospel, watch what God does through a local church. And I'm excited. I can honestly tell you I'm excited to be a part of what he's going to do through First Baptist Church.